Hi, I'm Nicole Doyley. Welcome to Let's Talk, Conversations on Race, Season 2. Since the death of George Floyd, there has been a tremendous amount of racial unrest in our country, and really all around the world. I mean, 76% of Americans say racism is a problem. And many are genuinely asking, perhaps for the first time, how did we get here? The mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, said, centuries-old wounds are still raw because they never healed right in the first place. Well, I believe part of the healing will come through conversation. As we talk and listen, individuals will change, families will change, churches, businesses, politics, and culture will change. It all starts by dragging things into the light. Racial injustice has been a thorn in America's flesh for a long time. It's time for it to be removed so that we could all move forward. Every human being has biases. Some may think it's odd for a dad to be a stay-at-home dad while his wife works. Someone else may have a negative reaction if she sees a person with lots of body piercings. And others wonder if women really have what it takes to be firefighters. But this podcast is about racial bias and racial conversations, and so we're going to talk about implicit racial bias. Implicit means a bias that you have that you're not even aware of until your emotions and reactions betray it. For example, if you're a woman and you put your purse in the shopping cart while you move up and down the aisles of Target, and then a black teen rounds the corner and and starts walking towards you and you find yourself as nonchalantly as possible picking up your purse and putting it tight on your shoulder, hoping the youth doesn't notice. That is implicit racial bias. Especially if you know that you would not do the same if it were a white youth dressed in the same clothes. You would never say black teens are thieves. You may not even consciously think it. But your emotions and reactions betray attitudes buried so deep within, you're not even aware of them. Have you ever zoned out while you're driving and you finally snap into focus and you're like, Where am I and how did I get here? Well, that's the topic of today's episode in terms of racial bias. Where are we and how did we get here? When it comes to America and racial tension, we keep thinking, can this finally be over? We had a civil war. We had a civil rights movement. We had a black president. We fired some racist cops. Can we be done now? Why are we still talking about this? Well, the reason we're still talking about this is because things keep happening and racial bias has been woven into American life and American culture since the founding of this country. It's part of our DNA. And we have to understand that if we're going to undo it and rise above it. You see, from the beginning of our country, black people were seen as subhuman inferior, and even animalistic. 
The first slaves were brought to America in 1619. And by the 1700s, many people were beginning to raise their voices against the inhumane trafficking of people. And people that had a lot to lose, mainly slave owners and slave traders, began looking for justification to prove to themselves that it's really okay what they were doing. And all this scientific writing began to be published, quote unquote, proving black inferiority. And really that black people are a different species altogether. You see, if black men aren't men, it's okay to shackle them. If black women aren't women, it's okay to sell their children. It's merely like giving away or selling the puppies of a dog. One slave trader said, it is impossible for us to suppose that these creatures, meaning black people, to be men, because allowing them to be men, suspicion would follow that we ourselves are not Christians. And so black men were called studs, beasts, characterized as hypersexualized animals, which have to be bound or they're going to kill the men and rape the wives. And black children were called pickaninnies, which are like goblins and black women like horses to be bred. You see, we human beings have a conscience. And before we're able to murder, rape, exploit, kidnap another human being, our conscience demands that we dehumanize them first. So way before Hitler's final solution, he began dehumanizing the Jews, calling them rats. And long before the genocide began in Rwanda, which, led eight, which left 800,000 people dead, the Hutus started calling the Tutsis cockroaches. The idea that black people aren't fully human was even written in our constitution. In article one, it says that black people are only three fifths human. And this stayed on the books until the 14th amendment was ratified in 1868, which states that anybody born in the United States is a person with the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But even though the 14th Amendment said that Black people are people, <clears throat> we were still seen as other, dangerous, inferior. <clears throat> as a matter of fact, when movies were first being produced and made, the most successful movie was called The Birth of a Nation. It was released in 1915 and it was an instant success and it was screened in the White House for President Wilson. And it depicted black men as unintelligent and sexually rapacious. And the Klan as valiant knights fighting for white domination and the preservation of American values. The movie raked in millions, which was incredible for the time. And it helped to shape American culture. And the dregs of it could still be seen today. Anyway, at the time, the Klan was wrecking havoc in the South and lynching with little or no provocation, and, and Black people had no rights and no legal resource to get justice for anything. And so around the time of World War I, Black people began to leave the South in droves. Six million Black people left the South 
for the North, hoping for better jobs, better wages, safer living, and a better life. This was called the Great Migration. And life was somewhat better, especially during the World Wars, because there were wartime jobs. But life was far from perfect for Black people in northern cities. You see, Black people were only permitted to live in certain places. Northern whites had also swallowed the pill that made them believe that Black people are other and dangerous and inferior. And they they panicked and, and erected residential boundaries and they created restrictive covenants penning Black people in to Black-only districts. And these districts offered only cramped tenement housing. Some of these apartments did not even have windows. One writer said they were like slave shacks stacked on top of each other. And not only that, but black renters were routinely charged 50% more than white renters were charged for white apartment buildings. And the federal government was complicit in this. The federal government also did not want the races to mix and they wanted to keep black people out of white neighborhoods. So FHA FHA loans were offered to builders at lower interest rates on one condition and one condition alone, that no home in a particular subdivision could be sold to African-Americans and no purchaser could resell to an African-American. Purchaser had to sign an agreement. So the new suburban subdivisions of the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s were built for white families and white families alone. One sociologist said these covenants robbed a group of Americans, meaning black Americans, of the opportunity to purchase an affordable home and build generational wealth. The kind of wealth that could be used to send your kids to college or help them purchase a home or leave an inheritance for their grandchildren. And so in this country, we had black people shackled for 250 years and then kept as far away from white people for another 100 years during legal segregation. And segregation basically communicated, we don't want you. We don't want you near us. We don't want you near our children. We don't want to work with you or live with you or eat at a restaurant with you or sit on a bus anywhere near you. And finally, with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, legal segregation ended. During this time, not only were Blacks forced to live in high-cost housing, but they were paid a fraction of the wages that white people were paid. Before 1964, black people, many of them were only allowed to have unskilled jobs with no possibility of promotion. And there were tricky ways of making sure that happened. For example, in Chicago, around the time of the depression, when when the government was giving money to different cities to start construction projects to begin to give men jobs, the only way to get a long-term construction job was if you had a union card. And these were sought after jobs because they provided a year's worth of secure income as most construction projects lasted for at least a year. 
black people were banned from unions. And so black men had to show up at job sites every morning and ask for scraps. These were the most unskilled, the most dangerous, and the worst paying jobs. And so black people were paid next to nothing and then paid 50% more for slum housing. Part of the, our foundation as a country is incredible. The balance of power, checks and balances, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, and freedom of speech, and all the freedoms. These are the reasons why many of us live here and why so many want to move here. But part of our foundation is rotten. It is built on white supremacy and the dehumanization of Black people. For hundreds of years, Black people were seen as other, and that just doesn't go away. So here's the problem. Many of, of my listeners don't want to be racist. They don't want to be prejudiced. You don't want to be prejudiced. But you look at the, the, the crime rate in Black neighborhoods and you scratch your head and you wonder why. And, and you look at the incarceration numbers and you look at the fatherless babies and, and you really wonder, how, why is this? Well, I ask you to consider a few things. First, let's look at the opioid rate, the opioid crisis. The opioid crisis is 90% in the white community. And we don't know exactly why that is. Some may know more than others, but probably none of us think, well, you know, those white people, they're, they're just a bunch of addicts and they, they just need to get with the program. Most of us don't think that way. We might not understand why the opioid crisis is mostly a white problem, but really it's our problem as a country. And we have compassion and we show empathy, and we show generosity, and we just want to see it solved. So why not show the same kind of largesse to the problems we see in poor Black communities? Secondly, the problem we see in poor Black communities are the same problems you will see in any poor community. The issue is poverty, not skin color. I've been to many poor countries and I've seen many poor communities and the maladies are all the same. Girls without goals and without opportunity become pregnant again and again. And boys without goals or opportunity get into trouble. Drugs, theft, gangs, violence. One sociologist said the overall pattern of poor persons having the highest rates of violent victimization was consistent for both whites and blacks. I'll tell you a story. One of our sons was born in a poor Vermont town. At the time we lived in New Hampshire, right on the border between New Hampshire and Vermont, and my obstetrician practiced out of a hospital in a poor Vermont town. Now, mind you, Vermont is like 98% white. Anyway, after my son was born and we were getting all bundled up and ready to go, several nurses came up to us and they looked at us with just astonishment in their eyes 
and appreciation in their eyes. And they said, it's so wonderful to see a baby going home to two parents who want it. And my heart broke a little bit in that moment and I asked the nurse what she meant. And she said, well, most of our mothers are teenagers and the boyfriends usually don't show up. And I could tell, we can tell, that this child is seen more as a bother and a problem and the baby is not really wanted. And we know that within a few years, the chances are high that this child will end up in foster care. And I thought to myself, how ironic that we are perhaps the first or maybe just one of a few black families that have ever darkened the door of this hospital and our family is the one that's solid and whole and we desperately want this child. The problem is poverty, not skin color. We have to recognize that we are fed via Hollywood and the media in general, a more sophisticated version of birth of a nation. In Hollywood, we see movie after movie of black drug dealers and black crime and black gangsters. But you know what? Both black and white people use and sell drugs at the same rate. So where are the movies about white people and drugs? Hollywood and the media would also like us to believe that most black people are poor. Well, in reality, most of us are not poor. About 20% of black people are poor. And there are more poor white people in America than poor black people in America. Our tax dollars support more whites on welfare than blacks on welfare. But movies about poor whites and the Rust Belt states or the Deep South just don't sell. And about crime, well, I did a Google search on gangsta movies and I had lost count trying to count them all that, that were about black gangs. But the truth is some of the largest gangs in this country are white gangs. And as we're fed these negative depictions of black people, we are rarely encouraged to consider the incredible resilience and determination of black people. In 1900, no black person could have authority over a white person or fight alongside a white person in the military or play professional baseball. But by the 21st century, we cannot imagine American life without the contributions of black people. The athletes, the musicians, the lawyers, the thinkers, the scientists, the writers, the judges, the teachers. Henry Louis Gates Jr. writes, American life is inconceivable without its black presence. The sheer intelligence and imagination of African Americans have disproportionately shaped American culture and produced wealth in the American economy and refined notions of freedom and equality in American politics. So what's the answer of curing our racial bias? It's partly education, what we read, what we watch, what we listen to, but probably more importantly, it's friendship. You can stay on your island, 
You can watch movies with stereotypical roles. You can tisk tisk at hip hop videos and the gangsta culture. And then when something bad happens, conclude, well, they brought it on themselves. I'm not biased. This is what it is. It's just their own fault. You are manipulated by the same old lies. Or you could go out to lunch or coffee with a black colleague and, and begin to get out of your ghettoized thinking. And you'll discover that you're both nervous about paying for college for your kids. And you're wondering which college they'll even get accepted to. And you may hear your black colleague say that he has a son and at an HBCU. And then you'll say, well, what's an HBCU? And you'll see all the sameness between you. And you'll be intrigued by some of the differences. And slowly these biases that you didn't even know you had will begin to disappear. And you know what the best thing is? You'll pass on your new knowledge and your new compassion and your new empathy to your children. Hi, this is Nicole Doily. Join us next time for Let's Talk Conversations on Race. And in the meantime, visit NicoleDoily.com.